I hope this works. I'm not sure that it will. Um, let's say prayers. Would anybody... Does anybody have any prayer requests tonight? I think this... Um, reading this book has been a little bit painful for me. I mean, it, it's not tell you what took place at our dinner table tonight before we came here, but um, I'm going to include that in our prayers. So let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life uh, from you, the gift of yourself in the Mass, for all the ways in which you are present. Um, people don't generally think of poets as saints. The really great ones are. They're close to you, they have to bear a great pain. Faulkner could not have done this without a great cost to himself to, to, to open these painful disorders in people and, and help us to see what so often goes on in ourselves and each other. And um, It's hard to know how to respond if we don't see very well, um, to, get, to give us the eyes that they do and help us to feel better those things that we should we are grateful i'd like to ask a blessing on all of us that in whatever these poets are showing us that we take greater courage in taking what we've been given to see into our world particularly where it's not wanted um, help us um, to do this please mary i ask for your prayers that all of us in this group take this seriously we offer these prayers uh, in you, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, Elliot's. Oh, sorry. Can I ask? Can, 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 can you talk? Bring it next time. Four quartets. Take a look at the at the um, the rubrics, the head notes. They are quotes from um, Heraclitus. If you remember, Heraclitus is one of those, I think it was a pre-Socratic, who, who, who had this wonderful sense of being, but who had a more lively sense of becoming. And he's the one that gave us this image of, of flux in our world, and he said, it's really impossible to know because the minute we think we know something, it's already changed. And he likened, to it, likened it to a person standing in a river. Because the river is not the same river from moment to moment. I hope everybody sees that, right? It's always flowing. So right at that point where you think you've got your sense of where you are, things are moving on. So he, he was very skeptical in his sense of what we could know because he knew since all things are in flux, how could we even presume to say we knew something? Because the minute we thought we knew it was already changing. Wonderful insight, wonderful insight. But he also saw more deeply, one of, one of the quotes that Eliot has taken from him is this one. Although logos is common to all, that is, I mean, you know, I mean, one of the positions I've been taking in this class is, we were all made in God's image. The word is at the center of our souls. I'm going to come back to this because it touches on the Benji. The logos is there. If it weren't, how in the world could we communicate with each other? It's what's, I'll tell you what's comic, tragic to me. I watch academics. I'm thinking right now of people who deal with literature. People in psychology, people in um, semiotics, structural linguistics, 
present these readings of a piece of literature, they absolutely contradict each other. And the fact of that contradiction doesn't bother them at all. They're absolutely certain of their conclusions and they're contradictory to each other. How can they be? The word university is based on the assumption that knowledge is intelligible and available to all. So we can enter into a university of studies and learn from all fields because they, they have something in common. Otherwise, how could they speak to each other? I hope that's obvious. And yet today, people are speaking to each other, contradicting each other, and not even worried about it, not even concerned. So thousands of years ago, Heraclitus said, although logos is common to all, reason is common to all of us, otherwise how in the world can we talk with each other? Most people live as if they had a wisdom of their own. <laughs> Don't tell me what's right, I know what's right. You know, that's, so we know that. So this is one of his quotes. The other one is, the way upward and the way downward are the same. The way up and the way down are the same. Okay. Now the four quartets is, is probably the greatest, in my sense, is probably the greatest poem of the 20th century. One of the hardest. <coughs> you guys are still here, it just amazes me. Um, one of the hardest. Um, it's, it's modeled on music. It's called the four quartets, and each quartet is divided into five sections, the way it would be for a quartet playing its music. Okay. Um, and he, he's got in mind the analog to music. He's trying to stay close to it. So each each quartet has its own theme. Yeah, each quartet has its own theme, and it develops it. It's like a variation on themes as you go through the parts. They're all related to the same theme. Okay, so just know that. Um, that's why it's called the Four Quartets. Every one of them um, is identified by some actual historical fact. Burt Norton is the name of a, of a manor, a house, an ancient aristocratic manor in England, in Gloucestershire, um, that was known for its aristocratic background. Elliot visited, um, let's see, four quartets, it's Bert Norton and Little Gidding, Dry Sauvages, and what am I missing? Uh, Little Gidding, Dry Sauvages, Bert Norton, can you remember the other one? Um, he's calling up depending on our, having some awareness, and even if we don't know it, we should take the trouble to get some sense of it. Bert Norton is the opening quartet and it has as its concern this problem of time. And I, I wanted especially to start with this tonight because of its bearing on the Quentin episode, because you know that Quentin is struggling with time and everything does. Um, Eliot was made aware by Dante, if you remember in the Paradiso, 28, 29, 27, I can't remember the canto, but when Dante reached the back of the universe, let me, let me sorry, let me go back for a second. If you read Plato's The Phaedrus, it's a wonderful dialogue. Plato says that no poet could ever give us the whole of things because no poet had ever gone to the back of the universe. You remember in the cave, you had to come outside the cave in order to get free of all the prejudices that formed you until you got outside of it, let go of it all, you wouldn't be clear-sighted enough to have any sense of truth. In the Phaedrus, he says, no poet has ever gone to the back of the universe. 
So he would never have the transcendent view that we would need in order to understand things here. Yeah? And you know, for those of you who did Dante, know that in the Paradiso, Dante, the last stage of his journey with Beatrice is up the heavens to the Imperium, outside the universe. And when he gets there, he sees that the universe is like a tree. The universe is a tree <coughs> with its roots outside of time. And there at the back of the universe, as he's standing there looking back at all the planets revolving, he looks at the center, and from one perspective, the fastest moving um, orbit is the primum mobile. It's the one that, that is invisible, that sets in motion all of the other orbits in their own speed. And you remember that each orbit, each planet, has its own sound, its own note, they have its own angelic order governing it, and each one produced a note, and together all of those notes produced the music of the spheres. It's this extraordinary harmony of God's beauty, and it could only be intellected. It was beyond the senses. The senses couldn't grasp it. I think I've told you there was only one character in Shakespeare's. In all of literature that I know of, there's only one person who hears the music of the spheres. It's in, it's in a play of Shakespeare's called Paradise. It, he, he undergoes a life of exhaustion, and at the end of his life, after thinking he's lost his wife and his daughter, um, he recovers them both. And in that moment, he hears the music of the spheres and sleeps. It's the first time he's rested. So the sense is that anybody who enters in that music, like a mystic, the mystical vision, will be at peace like a intimations of union with God. When Dante's there, he sees the prima mobile moving as fast as he can, and each planet moves successively slower until you get to the center of the Earth um, that's not moving at all, because obviously it's the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. That's from the perspective of his senses, because remember, the Earth is a place of decay. That's where death and decay are, the sublunar world. Everything below the moon is death. It's going to die. As you move closer to the heavens, you get closer to an eternal world. That's from one perspective. From the perspective of an intellection, when he looks in Beatrice's eyes, because she's got her mind on God, what he sees is exactly the opposite. The slowest moving sphere is the primobile and the outer earths, the other planets. When he gets to the center of the universe, he sees a point moving so fast, it's still called a still point, the fixed point. That's God. Remember, because in God, um, there is no desire in God. It's love, so it moves itself. So it's moving so fast, it imparts this emotion to the others, but it's still, it's a still point. So in Eliot's Four Quartets, he's, he's struggling to find this still point in our lives. This, what we would call this point of intersection between motion and God in his stillness. Movement, stillness. Love, desire, okay? So, and the struggle to do that is obviously not easy because we tend to live either in the past or the future. To live truly in the present, holy with God is an occupation for saints. But that's the burden of the four quartets, and it's the, the major burden of Bert Norton, okay? 
and let me leave it at that because I don't. Our, our point here is not Elliot; it's Faulkner. But I want you to have that. He's going to open with a couple of questions, with a proposition. We're going to be asked to look at a couple of thoughts, and those thoughts will immediately take us back to the garden. And I've said this before: all of us, according to great Hume, the most major thinkers recognize that the garden is a part of our psyche that it exists in all of us, whether we're aware of it or not. We want to go back to that place of peace. The Old Testament songs are longing to be, to return with, to Yahweh. Um, that place of peace and harmony uh, before the fall. He takes us back to this garden um, um, through poetry um, to, to recall something, to recover it, and that's the beginning of, of this action of Burt Norton, okay? Just keep that in mind, and, and we'll take a section of it each week, okay? And we'll break it down into five, and we'll do that with each one of the quartets. So, the four quartets, Burt Norton. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. Sorry, but I want to stop. Hold on to that when we think about Quentin tonight. Because Quentin's doing all he can to escape time because if there's nothing coming from outside time into time and you're stuck in time, you're stuck in a horror. That's what this book is showing. We saw it with Benji. We're going to see it with Quentin. Okay? It's Quentin's great struggle. If all time is eternally present... All time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. How often do we think, if only this had happened, if only this had happened, if this had not happened, that we live in our heads in a possibility instead of a world of choices that matter. Okay. Remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end which is always present. Footfalls echo in the memory down the passage which we did not take <coughs> towards the door we never open into the rose garden. My words echo thus in your mind. But to what purpose disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves, I do not know. Other echoes inhabit the garden. Shall we follow? Quick, said the bird, find them, find them, round the corner. Through the first gate, into our first world, shall we follow the deception of the thrush? Into our first world, there they were, dignified, invisible, moving without pressure over the dead leaves in the autumn heat through the vibrant air, and the bird called in response to the unheard music hidden in the shrubbery. Unheard music. How does music hide that use of uh, synesthesia where you combine sentences? in response to the unheard music hidden in the shrubbery and the unseen eye beam crossed. For the roses had the look of flowers that are looked at. There they were as our guests, accepted and accepting. So we moved and they in a formal pattern along the empty alley into the box circle to look down into the drained pool. Dry the pool, dry concrete, brown edged, and the pool was filled with water out of sunlight. And the lotus rose quietly, quietly, 
The surface glittered out of heart of light, and they were behind us, reflected in the pool. Then a cloud passed, and the pool was empty. Go, said the bird, for the leaves were full of children, hidden excitedly, containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end, which is always present. Okay, we'll pick this up each week. Okay. Um, God, how to do this? Um, a couple of things before we start. When Suzanne and I were at dinner tonight before we came, I, she was rushing to finish reading this and um, I was eager to hear her thoughts. And when we sat down, so I said, what did you think? The first words were, first words were, I grieve for Quentin. Mm-hmm. And how can you not? Um, and, and she, um, you know that, I think you know that she visited her sister a couple of weeks ago because her sister lost her husband. She and Debbie were talking, I guess, about somebody who's did a, did a really bad thing, apparently. I didn't ask Suzanne what it was, but she and her sister were talking about this person who did a very bad thing. And Debbie's response was, I wonder what led to it. What were the circumstances? And Suzanne, brave soul, um, said, if I'm getting this wrong, Dr. Whitney, um, but he's still accountable, still accountable. And I guess Debbie's response was, yeah, he is. It seems to me one of the things we've got here is, I mean, it's hard to read Benji episode and Quentin and not say, what produced this? The follow-up comment on Suzanne's part was, I hate the mother, she's despicable. <laughs> imagine living, imagine being a son growing up with a mother doing that. Um, and imagine Benji growing up in his, I mean, one of the things that we're being looked, we're asked to look at here is the family. And I said last time, the, the typical response of most Northern critics is, this is the South. <laughs> I look at this and think, this is the human family. I mean, this is us. If we don't read it that way, I think, I think we're missing. I said this last week and I really mean it. Um, I, I feel like it's a grace to read this book because it's showing all of us the worst. I mean, who, do, who of us doesn't complain or whine or if somebody does something and, you know, we're just seeing that page after page after page after page. I mean, people are not responding. They're making judgments all the time and they're completely missing. Who sees Quentin as he is? Who sees Benji? We talked about this last time. I mean, people are missing Benji right and left. Um, if that's the world you've grown up in, is there any wonder about why, why we do the things we do? We're back in Plato's cave. Um, so, just a, on a personal note, I, I, I remember saying last week, I remember saying to everybody in these groups, six months ago, whatever it was when we did the Aeneid, the Aeneid is not for faint-hearted people. Sound of the Fury multiplies that infinitely for me. I, I just think to read this book cannot be easy for anybody who's honest about himself because Faulkner is laying bare a painful, painful situation of modernity. This is us. This is our modern world. 
Um, one other thing, just as a reminder of something that I've said before, we live in a world after, after Descartes and after the Copernican Revolution, the Scientific Re Revolution, we live in a world that encourages to live in ideas. We live with dissociations between our bodies and our minds. We no longer live in a world trusting our bodies and our senses. We have been encouraged to live in our minds with arguments. So long as we live in our minds, we tend to see people through concepts. We see them as objects. It's almost impossible not to objectify somebody. We know from our faith, I think, I mean, it's one of the premises of our faith, that God is the only one who knows us as subjects because he created us. The poets are the ones who take us into an interior world so we know another not as an object but as a subject. Benji's Benji section did this for us last week, right? We entered into his consciousness. Um, so remember, I've talked about this. If you look at a Jane Austen novel, you're presented with the world and the narrator, Austen, will present Elizabeth Bennet, say if it's Pride and Prejudice, she did this, she did this, she did this, and there are occasions when we approach Elizabeth's interior, but we never get into it. In the modern world after Joyce, and then particularly in Faulkner, we enter into that interior world. So we're learning to see the events of a family, but through the, through the prism of an individual consciousness. So we enter into the interior. We, we enter into that person as subject. We're not looking at him through co concepts. This is not knowledge about, not knowledge about. It, it is knowledge that is. It's much closer to the knowledge that God has. Is that clear? Knowledge is about is through concepts. We know about a person. We can have all sorts of psychological theories about some, you know, that's a theoretical construct. In poetry, we're not looking at somebody <coughs> in terms of about. <coughs> we actually enter into their psyche. If, if you, I'd be surprised if you're not aware that you know that when you enter into Benji, everything that's given to us is through his own register, his own idiom, as primitive as that is. In the, in the uh, Quentin story, we enter into Quentin, whose idiom is completely different. It's individual to him, right? Couldn't be more different. He's far more intellectual, far more abstract. He's got classical illusions that he makes all the time. It's a very different psyche. So we know him as subject. So Faulkner is helping us to bridge that dichotomy between ourselves and another person. So that we learn to be, we learn to know, we, we become aware that we don't always know what we think we do about another person, basically. So, um, in that sense, for me, I'm just repeating some of the things I've said before. In that sense, there's something prophetic. We're learning to see differently. Um, we're learning to see ourselves. It seems to me, if we're not reading and seeing the judgments that people make and how often they're wrong, then I'm not sure that we're reading as closely as, as we should be. Um, we're meant to enter into this world, and, and Faulkner like Eliot, he does not make judgments. He's not making judgments. We're left to make judgments on our own. What he's doing is presenting this story, and we will have to take from it what we can. Okay. So, with those um, 
just background things very, very quickly. I want to go back just for a minute, just for a minute, um, truly a minute, just briefly, um, to recall some things about the last two works that we did <coughs> as a way of reviewing, but also because they really bear on what's happening here. In, in Melville's Moby Dick and Faulkner's Go Down Moses, we saw the treatment of, the, of probably the best writers of the 19th and 20th century, Melville and Faulkner, give us a reading of a Christianity that has failed in America. That's what both of the writers show us. Um, in Moby Dick we saw that the, the people in that New England culture um, were no longer living their Christian faith. There were hypocrisies everywhere. And the great vice that was motivating them all was money. Fuck, or I mean, uh, Melville identified it's cupidity. He says that they wanted money. They wanted, you know, whales to get money, and so they go out with this vengeance to take possession of the world. Um, and at the same time, they do it with a sense of injury that everybody's been wounded. They all get caught up in Ahab's quest, and you know the story, so I don't want to go back. But but at the at the heart of that failed Christianity was Christianity by that time had declined into a moral code. It was one of the great, I thought, one of the great insights of that. And the question that I raised then, because it was a new one for me, was can Christianity survive without the sacraments? Is a moral code sufficient? What we see in Moby Dick is that it's not at all. People can live very respectable lives and, and fail horribly in their faith. That's what we saw in Moby, in Moby Dick. That's what we saw in Faulkner. In Faulkner, the great sin was possessiveness. It's like cupidity. It's this feeling of it's mine that, that was encouraged by the plantation culture and the, the using other human beings to help you earn money. You know. So in Moby Dick and Go Down Moses, we, we were shown a Christianity that has failed in both the North and the South. In the North, it took on a metaphysical aspect. Ahab wanted to get to the evil. He thought it was metaphysical. He could not understand how somebody could be predestined to be damned. The idea that human beings didn't have a free will undid him. He was so outraged at, at that. And he wanted to strike at that. You know that that was his answer to it. In Go Down Moses, when Ike discovered the horrors that his grandfather had committed, and he saw the sin of that possessiveness to use another person for your own ends, how horrible that was, his answer to it was to renounce his inheritance. Um, so we saw both writers dealing with the failure of Christianity in America in the modern world. That's where, we, Mark, hold it if you can, because I'm, I'm not going to take any questions for, sorry, I really want to get going, because um, we've got, um, I've got to get to Sound and the Fury, and this is just background reading. But take, after class, if you can wait a minute, I'd be glad to. We saw that there were two very different readings. Um, the um, Ahab tended to see things through a Puritan, northern New England, I mean, a, a, um, a northern theology. Um, remember that Ike had learned to read through the teachings of Sam Fathers. It's what made him such a careful reader. Um, he, remember we talked about that, how, how perceptive he was of 
what was going around him. He could see things that the Amin could not see. And we saw the differences between, two fundamental differences between the two cultures. The North was very individualistic. They were all isolated. They were called isolados. And the South was very communal. There was a sense of a we. They shared a land, an identity. And I love that Faulkner's um, description. Remember, it's called the anonymous communal. There's that voice, the narrative voice in Go Down Moses was, it was impersonal and anonymous. We didn't know who it was. But there was a sense of a community. And each one of the stories was told from a different point of view. So in the South, we, we came away with this sense that there are individual voices of um, what Bakhtin would call a um, heteroglossia, many-tongued. There was a we, a, poly, a polyphony of voices. In the North, it was Ishmael. Call me Ishmael, and um, he told a story. Um, and remember, the end of Ishmael's story is to call people back to being, because when he began to separate himself from Ahab's quest, he began to find meaning everywhere. There wasn't anything he looked at that wasn't full of meaning. So two very different views, but that was the background. Um, now, we, we come from that background to Sound of the Fury. Last week, I read that passage from Macbeth. Remember, it's the passage when Macbeth begins to see that everything that he plotted with the riches, with witches is in collapse. It's falling apart. So keep this in mind. He speaks that speech when things are falling apart. Um, he just got the news that his wife died, and after that speech, he's going to get the news that Dunsin and Wood is moving. And that shakes him to his bones because he knew from the prophecy they didn't have anything to be afraid of unless the woods would move. And he was convinced that the wood, woods don't move. So he, he felt he was invulnerable. And then he gets that news and he's shaken. When does this story take place? It takes place in a period of absolute collapse. The South is in collapse. It, it is losing its way. It lost the Civil War. A whole aristocratic way has been cast into doubt. The sense of an identity with a past is called into question. People don't know who they are. Um, that's at the center of this book. So we're watching a South struggle with a question that I don't think the North has. And I've said this before. So many Southern writers said that one of the great gifts given to them after the Civil War is they became aware of their own sins in a way that wasn't true of the North. And that's why the South has been so rich in its literary tradition. I mean, like you could go, all the writers that I mentioned that we're going to do, Eudora Welty, Flannery O'Connor, Catherine Ann Porter, they're all Southerners. Um, so, um, the major theme. Um, Faulkner sets this story at a time of decline, when a, when a family seems to be in disintegration. It's lost a sense of itself. Benji's an idiot. Maury has committed adultery. Why he's there in the first place, nobody knows. He doesn't work. Um, Quentin commits suicide. The father's an alcoholic. The mother's hypochondriac. Um, Caddy conceives an illegitimate child. Quentin, who, who comes back 19 years later and repeats the same act. She runs off at the very end. That's the way it ends. So Faulkner is presenting us with a, with a story of 
a family, and I think in some ways an image of what we're to take is going on in the South. That, that, the, that, that the culture of the South has lost its roots. It was an aristocratic culture at one time. Remember the, the two foundings. The Northern founding was a Puritan religious founding. The Southern founding was a plantation, economic founding. It was based on a slave culture. Um, we talked a little bit about the theme of the past. It keeps intruding. Um, the importance of involuntary memories, particularly in Benji. Um, in, in Quentin, it's interesting. I, I, I don't think it's always just involuntary memories. I think one of the differences between Benji and Quentin is that Quentin muses on his past. He thinks about it. Um, he thinks about his father's comments. He can't, he's always thinking about his father's comments. Um, he's more thoughtful. He's far more abstract, like his father. With Benji, we have the sense that he's helpless. Something will happen and it will trigger a response. Um, Quentin has more control, but, but he's just as troubled about his past, so the past keeps um, troubling him. Um, in the Quentin, the Compson family, we see a family for whom religion means practically nothing. Um, Jason Compson, the father, repeatedly puts down Christ. He, um, he, he has all of these images about Christ walking on light, that he, um, he died from being worn out. He denies the crucifixion. Late in the novel, in the very last pages, he describes human beings as nothing more than dolls stuffed with sawdust from whose side they poured. That's an indirect allusion to Christ. Um, so he can't look at Christ without putting him down. So for him, Christ is more like a prophet, a moral figure, which is, I mean, obviously true for lots of people. We talked about this. For lots of people, Christ is a prophet. He's a moral figure. He's not God. The sacrament doesn't mean as much. If he's a moral figure, he is for Islam. There's lots of people today who look at Christ as a prophet, a, a, this outstanding moral figure. He belongs with uh, Gandhi and Socrates. I keep getting letters from an old colleague. I've got to write him because I have not good things to say to him. He keeps putting Christ with Gandhi and uh, Socrates and says, these are our great leaders. Yeah, so long as you understand one of them was a god, and the other two are men, um, but god. This is a brilliant, brilliant physicist, by the way. God. And the theme of reading, which we always come back to. We saw in the Benji episode that almost nobody reads well. Um, and Faulkner is hopefully helping us to read because he's making us aware of how much more there is for us to see. We left last week with these two questions, major questions. We, we can't, I don't want to answer the first one till we get towards the end, but the story set on Easter weekend, and you know that the days are inverted, that he starts with Easter Saturday in the Benji episode. We go back to Quentin's death 10 years earlier, and then we go back to um, Good Friday, a day earlier for the Jason section. Why did Faulkner do that? What's he doing? In, in, in this world in which this family makes no place for religion, <coughs> why is he set on an Easter weekend? Why did he do this? Um, so that to me is just a major question we've got to tackle uh, before we finish our work here. And the second one, um, 
was what was Benji trying to say? You know, and I, I, I don't know what your thoughts about that were, but it was a revelation. I don't. I hope I'm reading. I hope I'm reading well on that because it seems to me one of the one of the elements of suspense or something that holds our interest in that Benji section is he keeps trying to speak. Caddy keeps saying, "What are you trying to say?" And you know that he when he goes out to meet Caddy at the gate, he goes out to the girls and says. I wanted to say, I wanted to say. And then on another day, he comes back and opens the gate and goes and touches one of the girls and said, I wanted to say, I wanted to say. And the father of the girl gets so outraged. I mean, he's so upset. And the, and the family, who's so susceptible to that, castrate him. Um, so, I mean, there's that judgment again, that complete failure. And then I asked the question, what was Benji trying to say? <coughs> You know, um, I thought Tracy. I thought you hit it, Tracy. But I want to. I want to. I've been thinking about this because it really troubled me. Um, Benji doesn't have the words "I love you." He, you know, he keep. If if I were to describe, I'm going to get to this to the Quentin section. If I were to describe the plot of the Benji episode, well, here, let me ask you: What's the plot? You you know the plot is a number of events, right? This happened. This happened. If you take all of the Benji events. And you remember that the plot's an imitation of an action, what's invisible. If the plot is this happened, Luster looks for the quarter, they go to the branch, you know, go to the swing and then home and argue. That's the plot. The action is that's an imitation of an action, an inward movement. What's the action of the Benji section? What would you say? I'm going to ask this about the Quentin section too. What's the Quentin, the action of the Quentin? Seems to me crucial. We can't, we can't understand literature well without taking very seriously the literal events. And most intellectuals overlook them. There's not going to be anything there that's, that doesn't rest in the literal events. It's either there or not. You can't just make it be whatever you want. So we have to take seriously the liter this happened, this happened, this happened. What's the action? Anybody want to offer? Benji's search for a life-giving um, person, like which would be Caddy, Caddy. in this case. Yeah, I, I was actually using those. It's interesting, Jen. I was actually <laughs> using those words. I would have said he's searching, but then I thought as soon as I heard that he's waiting, searching for, waiting. You know, he goes to the gate to wait, or searching. Um, I want to add this to our to, to the you know the 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 things that were said. Um, particularly, Tracy, your comment last week when we ended. I'm not sure that it's I love you, because I don't think he has the word for it. I want to put it this way, and it's that the, the image for me is that hind panting for water. I'm going to say this. It's the longing for the word that the, is at the center of every human being, that longing for the intimacy shared between the persons of the Trinity. I love you gets close to it, obviously. I'm not sure that that captures it fully. If the, or, or let me put it differently. Imagine the three persons of the Trinity. <coughs> Tell me what words they exchange with each other. Anybody? I need you. Hmm? I need you. I need you. There's no need in divinity. Absolutely none. Their love is complete. They don't lack any. Humans need. Gods don't. 
Eliot talks about, the mystics talk about the unspoken word. Do they talk? Let, let me put it this way. I, I, don't, I don't want to go down too far that line because it's, it's a little bit maybe too mystical, but I'm going to say, I love you gets close, I think. I think what, what I, and I'm going to say, I think this is what all of the people in this world are hungering for and can't find. The father, the mother, Quint, Caddy, almost more than anybody. Love isn't satisfied. It's not there. There's no God. There is this, if, there's, if, if we were made in the image of God, and it's Trinitarian, there's got to be this longing for the intimacy of that life with the Trinity. When Benji goes out waiting and he can't find words, at least in some part I think we're meant to have some sense that he's going out there longing for Caddy, who's the image of answering it for him. You know, he, she's been gone for, what, 19, 10, 18 years. 18 years. He doesn't miss her. He doesn't even know time. He continues to go out there. This is 18 years later, and he gets roiled when he hears the word caddy. How deep is that longing? The father's alcoholism? Quinn's despair? If that's what's at the center of your soul and you have no way of getting to it, what are you going to do? Quentin episode. Kill yourself. And there it is. Here's the modern world. They got out of the picture. If this is what happens in time, what do you have to live for? Cynicism will cover it, cover it up, sentimentalize it. What was that? What doc? When we were talking um, here, here, two possible ways of sentimentalizing that love. Herbert Heed comes head comes into the story, takes you off, and marries you, and because she says, "I have to marry somebody." I have to. He marries you, or Dalton Ames, who is the more along the ideal of a, the romantic hero. You know, he, he's a much better man. She goes off with him. Neither one of those Hollywood endings happen in this story. She goes off, her husband divorces her, the family will not speak to her again. So this is a, an ugly world without a mercy, without a divine mercy. And we, we are surrounded by characters who have this great longing. It's in Caddy, it's in Quentin. So I would say, I would say the, the action of the Benji story is this waiting, longing for Caddy. This is 18 years later and he still goes out to the gate. And I would say the act, this is going to be much harder. I would say the action of the Quentin story, this is tougher. It's still possible, in Benji's consciousness, it's still possible that Caddy will arrive. Right? He doesn't know any better. He goes out waiting. Quentin knows she will not come back. And not only does he know she won't come back, he knows he's failed her. In his own mind, repeatedly, um, he hated Herbert. Um, Dalton Ames takes him out when he threatens to kill him, when he says, get out of town. and um, he, Quentin has this ideal of himself as this sort of chivalric person who, who, who loves his sister and wants to protect her, and he can't. 
she's going and, and she says, how did she put it when when she came at it when he was talking with her? But she said, are you still are you still interfering with my life? I can't remember the words, wasn't it? But you know, um, she wants to get out. So Quentin, Quentin's I would describe Quentin's action as twofold. That he grieves over having failed. He did everything he could to spare her. And not being able to do that, and having nothing to live for, he spends that day doing everything he can to escape time, I'll get to that in a minute, and to get ready for death, to give his life up. It's his way of answering the horror of our life. That's that Macbeth quote, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. You know, there's no meaning for him anymore. Um, so his, if everything's trapped in time and there's nothing outside of time coming in to redeem it, then the only way to answer that is defeat time by taking time away, by entering into the next life, by dying. But he did buy that bread that Yeah, girl. he's a good man. Doesn't that, I mean, it doesn't that make it only more painful? I mean, he, I think he loves candy. He buys the bread. He's a, he's a, you know, everybody at everybody at Harvard makes fun of him because he's a virgin. He's he's not to be a man. You're supposed to go out and have sex with a woman. He can't even claim that. I mean, he you know he lives with this embarrassment because he's really trying to live his ideals. Um, he he wants to fight Herbert. He wants to fight um, Ames, and he wants to fight Gerard at the end, who knocks him out. I mean, he he does that not because he's bad, because the men he's surrounded by are self-centered men who, who typically put down women. Where Every one of them. Where did he get these morals if, he, if they didn't have any faith for Christianity? Here, good. Let me, I'm, going, I'm going right there. So, here. So, that's just the, that's the Quentin, I would say that's the Quentin action. The background behind it. Remember the two foundings. Remember the two foundings. The South was... Um, um, commercial. It was a plantation. But the roots of the plantation, Southern founding, were 18th, 19th, 18th, 17th, 18th century English aristocracy. And, of course, and remember, the roots of that were Greek and the Roman world. Remember in Go Down Moses, um, Ike's uncles were Theophilus and Amodius. Greek and Latin for... And we keep getting Greek and Latin tags through the whole story. The ideal for the, for the South um, was for a man to be a gentleman that was inherited from England and an aristocratic class, chivalric, watching out for women, and the ideal of a woman was to be a lady. And what we see in both men is the corruption of both of those ideals. And Quentin is doing everything he can to live up to him when nobody else does. So, um, and hold on, just to make this clear, it seems to me the, the, the nature of that ideal for him, that chivalric ideal, um, and, and the horrible ironies of it, because he, you know, I'll come back. Um, the way in which that comes into focus is if you, if you set him next to Herbert and Gerard and um, 
adult names, um, you see Quentin attempting to live out. By the way, those ideals were Catholic Christian Middle Ages. That was the fruit of a Catholic Christian culture, the chivalric ideal um, and the lady. That was imported to America when Christianity was already failing, but it's there. Look at the difference now. So keep that in mind. I mean, that's, those, those were always the Southern ideals. And I, you can still see signs of it today. Young men are, are, are raised to say, sir, to be respectful. Women are encouraged to see themselves as princesses. I know that from lots of people who I mean, have talked young women who've been raised in the South, who, whose mothers raised them with that sort of ideal. Isn't, isn't that kind of the reason he has this uncontrollable laughter when yeah. he gets accused of kidnapping the girl? Yeah. Because it's the irony of the situation that, that causes him this yeah. uncontrollable laughter. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, and along with the sense that he's getting closer to the time of suicide and, and things are beginning to unravel. And he went out for these strolls and, and here he's picked up by the police and accused of something. And so much is going on at the end of that episode. When they get in the car, he can't, he can't stop laughing. But um, Wait a minute, I just want to um, mark before I, because um, to keep this in mind, to see it more clearly, remember he comes from Jefferson. Where is he going? Harvard. It's the ideal of a northern culture. What kind of men do he, does he meet there? Herbert, who got kicked out of a card, a club, for cheating at cards. Herbert is afraid Quentin's going to take that to his mother and it's going to break up the, the wedding. He bribes him not to say anything. He, he says, I'll give you a, a job you know, with the bank as well. You've got banking interest in Herbert and, and Quentin's mother fawning over him because of the money that's going to come into their family. She can, she can boast now that that's the first time a car came into the town because of a girl. Herbert comes in and he shows off. Gerard can't stop talking about his conquests with women. So Quentin, he's Southern. He belongs to an agrarian world. He's not the sophisticated bank that encourages self-interest, look out for yourself, use people. He's entered that Harvard world, and, and um, Faulkner is so clear on the differences between this agrarian Jefferson world and everything that's taking place at Harvard. Where does Quentin kill himself? Harvard. He has, where does he go? He has no place in this world. And he's surrounded by people who can only make fun of him because he's trying to do these things. It's an old way. Imagine what it must be like for a woman or a guy growing up today trying to be chivalric or live. I mean, they would be laughable in our world. Um, made fun of. That's the world he's grown up in. Anyway, Mark. This has to be brief. Being, being a student of history, this is very much the story of the South after the Civil War. Everything that's going on. It was, everything they knew was completely destroyed. Yep. The family is completely destroyed. It's taken over by the North. Yep. Ridiculed, made fun of. Yep. So to, I mean, to me, it's more of a historical saying. It's much more of a story of just the absolute destruction of everything that made the South South. Of a culture, yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah, except here we get it at an actual personal level. It's not an abstraction. We're actually living it as it's happening. So... Um, 
So if I were if I were to describe Quentin's action, if I can call it that, it, it's it's twofold. It's those two things. It's um, um, he 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 carries within him this grief from having failed to live up to these ideals that he has, these chivalric ideals. His father gives him no support. His father is very cynical. Um, um, I don't know that we'll have time to talk about the irony of it because you know he goes to his father and his, one of his ways of, of trying to protect Caddy is to say he had incest with her as if that were going to do it. I think one of the ironies of the Quentin section is as noble as he wants to be, and I have to say this really honestly, as seriously as he takes honor, because honestly the people in the earth do not take honor as seriously as the southerners, that's just been a cultural radical difference. On, the honor code in the south has been part of its culture from the beginning. Men went out and dueled in the South over questions of honor. Quinn takes honor very seriously. To have Caddy um, go off with Herbert is a humiliation to him. It's a matter of dishonor. And then to have her, I mean, he won't be around when, because he's going to kill himself a couple of months after the marriage. Think about that. It's only shortly after the marriage that he takes his life. So he carries this grief of, of having failed and feeling that there's no place for him in this world. That's one, and the second is that I think he's doing everything he can to stop time. At the very beginning of the story, he's always aware of what hour it is, when class bells ring, when he goes to the post office on campus, he knows the time. At every point after that, he's doing everything he can to not know time. Um, I think, this is my sense, you. Tell me if you differ. Because you know that his father says, if time is nothing more than the ticking on the hands of a clock, then there is no life. He rips off the hands of the clock in the opening scene. Um, he does everything he can not to know what time it is. And yet, he's fascinated by his shadow because his shadow, in some sense, is an image, I think, of what he's about to become. If you see the, the, all of the meditations on the shadow, he constantly steps on it, he walks on it, he meditates. There's that one scene where he looks at the shadow in the river and thinks about it drowning. Because the shadow is insubstantial, it's, it does not. And there's those passages at the end, very end, where he's, he recalls a, a conversation with his dad again and, and he uses the Latin um, non, non fui, so I can't remember the Latin, but I am not, I am, I am not, I am, I am not. He keeps moving back and forth between the fact that he knows he's alive right now and he's about to die. So everything he does is to distance himself from time to prepare for that moment when he will be outside of it. When he asked the three boys at the swimming hole, remember the lake, if there was a town nearby or a factory, I think he does it because he knows a factory whistle will sound. And as he approaches the town, he sits down so he doesn't look on the, at the clock on the cupola. Everything he does, and, and increasingly, you know, he, when he returns home that night, he will hear the chimes of the tower, but only on the quarter hour, or the 45, not on the hour. So over the court, what we're watching happen is Quentin, I think, preparing himself for what's about to be. 
So between the two of them, Caddy is at the center of their life. For both of them, the defining thing is their love of their sister. Quentin longs for her. He, he, he keeps waiting for her to come back. He has no clue. Huh? Or sorry, Benji, sorry, thanks. God, getting worse and worse. Benji waits for her. Quentin lives with the defeat. He couldn't prevent it. The, the dishonor of the family goes to hit the roots of his soul. Because of who she married. Like, what did he want for her? Well, and do you think there's something more? I want no, I didn't understand any of that. Uh, <laughs> I think there's something more, but let's, let me, I'm going to get to that when we, I'm going to do the readings right now. But um, I think that's the, the general picture. And I think it's really important to see um, the difference between the North and South again. We had some sense of that in Go Down Moses. We certainly had a good sense of it when we put Moby Dick together with Go Down Moses. You put those two books together and you've got America. Now, Faulkner's dealing with both of them, but in a much more modern way. Um, and it's, it's, it, it's particularly emphasized, I think, in the contrast between Harvard as, an, as the educational institution in the North and Jefferson. A nothing city, an agrarian, banking interests with Heed, you know Herbert, who who bribes people, who 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 finally is him so embarrassed that the child's not him that he sends Caddy away. At the center of all these men's lives, this is and I, that's why I wondered if at the center of all these men's lives is this woman Caddy. Um, even though she doesn't take a major role, I mean, she reminds me of so many of the feminine figures in so many of the works. She's absolutely defining. Is there a Marian story in this at all? Hmm? Is there a Marian story in this at all? Pregnant woman shows up, husband wants to, what the hell? You know? <laughs> 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 taking her. I'm not, not saying there's yeah, any thing in there, but I don't know. it's kind of a Marian story. It seems to me that it's, it's it, I, would, I, I myself would say no, but it's so universal, where does it not apply? Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it seems to me it applies to all relationships in some ways. But okay, um, I want to get to the reading because I want to. I've got to get better at getting us out of here. Several things that stand out. Do not listen to him, Doc. Ignore him right now. Several things that stand out in the Quentin plot. Here's the Quentin plot. Remember the Benji plot. Nothing happened. Nothing happens here. That's what's so wonderful about both of these plots. He gets up in the morning, he dresses, puts on a new suit, writes these two letters, one to Shreve, one to his father. He goes to the Harvard post office, mails him, and goes to town looking for Deacon, comes back, he finds him and Shreve. Then he sets off again on a trolley, um, takes off, gets off, and then takes this walk, um, passes these three boys who are fishing, and, um, and then um, goes on this country road towards this town. When he gets to the town, he walks into this bakery and meets this little girl. And he buys her cake and they walk. He looks after her and he calls her sister. And by the way, I don't know how you want to look at this, but this, the, the three boys in some ways, I don't know if it's meant to be, It's, it's meant to encourage us to think of the, of the Compson kids playing at the branch and a contrast, I'm not sure. 
but I really believe that there's something with a girl. He calls her sister, and he looks out for her. And again, once again, he does everything he can to try to help her. He cannot find her home. And then at some point, he buys her off, gives her a quarter, and tries to shake her. Runs off. She, she comes after him, and you know what happens then. The brother comes along, and he goes to jail, and then um, Shreve and uh, Mrs. Bland and the others um, come across him in the car and take him to the police station and get him off. Um, he is so insulted by what Gerard says about women that we, we're, it's not clear what happened, but it'll, it, it sounds like he struck him and that Gerard knocked him out. And the next thing he knows is that he's awake in his house and Shreve asks if he can help him. He says no and he, he, he takes off and he goes back to Harvard. That's it. Except for the fight with Gerard who knocks him out, nothing happens. But like the Benji episode, we get this whole family, this, this family, this inner collapse that's not visible to the outer eye, and in some ways we're left with this devastation. Here's this young man who obviously has no more reason to live, who, has, who, who can only answer the meaninglessness of his life by ending his own life. So, But there's several things. One is um, he's preoccupied with time. He's constantly trying to walk on his shadow. Um, wait, by the way, the other thing, it seems to me the one thing he set out to do on, on that morning, the morning wanderings, is to buy the irons and hide them. I can't find another purpose. He goes to the hardware store, remember, to get the irons to sink him, and he hides them under the bridge. Apart from that, I, I can't recall a purpose except going to the post office to mail the letters. The rest of it is seems to be wandering and doing meditations on his shadow on the nature and life itself and what he's about to do. The meeting of the three boys um, is important and his meeting of the young Italian girl and what happens with her brother. And once again we see a brother-sister relationship and I think in some way we've got to set Quentin off with Caddy. Um, he gets arrested and um, and then this blow-up happens in the car, and I want to get to that in a minute because I want to do the, um, the reading. Um, so nothing happens exactly as it does in the Benji episode, except here, Quentin carries this awful burden of grief um, and this despair. The events from the past that stand out, are all the exchanges with his father. We know how cynical his father is. His father is a bitter, cynical man. Um, has nothing good to say about anybody. Um, his attitude towards women is full of contempt. He thinks that virginity is a, a male construct. When Quentin tries to, in that ironic way, tries to spare Caddy by saying um, he's the, he had incest with her, the father knows he's lying that he wouldn't do that. Um, so the exchanges with the father, there are some exchanges with his mother that are really bitter, and there's that one passage that is repeated twice in the section that I remember. He said, if I only had a mother, if I only had a mother. And I want to come back to this. I want to stay on this just for a second. Remember that I think one of the more important things going on in the Benji episode is that Benji longs for something. He doesn't have words. He can't speak the words. 
um, there is this longing in Quentin. It says, if I, only had, if, I, if I only had a mother, if I could only say mother, that in some way, as a boy, she was not there. What do you do in the absence of that? So once again, we see in a character this awful longing. And I just go back to my opening comment. If we're made in the image of Christ, and that word is in us, the ultimate answer, the satisfaction of that longing won't be complete until, like Dante. And, and by the way, those of you who are with me with, who did the Dante, remember at the end of the Divine Comedy, Dante goes up to the Imperium, he's in the Imperium with the safe, and the very last view is of the Trinity. And he just briefly describes the Father and then the Holy Ghost. And then he looks at the image in the middle because he said to try to square a human person with the divine. So it's like trying to square a circle, if you remember that, you couldn't do it. And the only response after that is silence. What words can describe the Trinity? If there is this word at the center of every human being, this great, great longing, how can it be answered except with Christ? How can we love each other the way we've been called to without him? Take that away, what do we have? I mean, that to me is the Quentin episode. And so he, um, he has these thoughts about his mother. There's this, the episode with um, Herbert Head and then with Natalie, remember, um, I, I wish we had time, but we don't have time to look at it. There's that scene in which Natalie and Quentin are in the barn, it's raining, and I guess Caddy comes in on them when they're kissing and hugging. It, it sounds to me like there's a kissing because Faulkner's going, ooh, 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 it's like a passionate, you know, sort of moaning or something. Anyway, Caddy's outraged. She pushes her off the ladder and tells her, she calls her an old cow or something and tells her to, you know, get out and, and Natalie goes off. And, and it's only one of those scenes in which we see that there is between them, I think this is in the teenage years, I, I might be wrong on this, it's not dated, but there is this period in their lives, I'm, I, I hope I'm not off, I hope I'm maybe st stepping out on a limb here. I've seen it with kissing cousins in our family, which you call, there, there's a point, it, is, is there a point in all families where a young boy and a young girl, brother and sister, become aware of their sexuality. What do they do at that point in their lives? I'm asking a really serious, I don't want to get into it, but just to rhetorically throw it out there. What do you do as a young boy when you're watching your sister develop breasts? What does a girl do when she's, I mean, how do you come into that sexuality, particularly if you've got Puritan notions about you? What in the world do you do? Caddy comes in and she's furious. So there, there, there is something possessive about both of them as brother and sister, and how much of it is a sexual awakening? I don't know, but it, it's so clear that so much of everything that happens afterwards is sexual, explicitly. We're going to look at it in a minute. So we're watching, you know, in the Benji episode, we see them when they're young. Cat gets mud on her drawers and they watch her go up, and you can say it's indirectly, you know, a little bit, it's suggestive. But here in the Quentin, we're taking a step farther. And I think it's suggested that sexual, and I don't mean this in a mean way or a negative critical. When I look at it, I just think, can anybody grow up in a family, can a young boy, or I mean, how, how, do, how does any brother and sister reach a point when they're beginning to 
discover that there's something wrong with them. <laughs> I mean, what do you do when something happens and you have no reason for it, and suddenly, I mean, boys have wet dreams, or you know, what, all that stuff that begins in a girl. I, I can't speak to the women here, but I hope I'm not out of place here. That I just I look at this and think. I, I don't believe this is just Freudian in a Freudian way. How much of this is just natural, but but troubling because what do you do to prepare for it? And if your parents don't help you through it, what do neither, you do? Neither parent helped either parent. Yeah, no. They were just, just lost. Yeah. yeah. They were lost. And, have, and what do you do if you and you suddenly find out you're different, and your parents can't won't help you, or what do you do? It just seems to me it's not a small problem in our age for all of us. So, um, And then there's that episode at the branch where he and Caddy are there. He puts the knife to her throat. I'm going to look at these. I want to read through these. Offering to that they, he kill her and himself as, as a way out of the predicament that they're in. And in the very next episode, we're going to see the episode with Dalton names. And so what I'd like to do um, is take is do some reading and go through to, to get a better sense of good. Before we do, any questions? I know that's a, an awful lot, but I hope that sort of lays out the Quentin episode and, and that it's a little bit clear if you put it next to Benji to see that we're inside of both characters and that there's an awful lot that they have in common, but there are also fundamental differences between them. And it, if we put them next to each other, we, we see a lot. Any questions? Candy? No? I didn't get a chance to tell you. I was so glad when you walked in last week. Oh. <laughs> I was. And I'm glad all the troublemakers are separated tonight. <laughs> or some of them. <laughs> spread out. Spread out. Okay, let's, let's go through some of the reading and... Um, Go back to the very first page. Let me let me start there. I'm going to just try to go briefly through some of these readings. 76 in our book. Um, watch the opening because in some ways it's profound. He comes into time, which is another way of saying out of sleep into consciousness, and now he has to bear the burdens of consciousness. Yeah. When the shadow of the sash appeared in the curtains, it was between 7 and 8 o'clock, and then I was in time again. So there he is. And by the way, remember, um, I suggested in the Benji episode, the Benji episode concludes with, with Benji saying and Caddy saying that I had been asleep again. So we have a sense that the night had passed, which means there was no time for Benji. He wakes up and he's in time again. And the day starts over, and I think we're meant to see, it's just a cycle. And I think we're meant to see in some way it's that way for, for um, Quentin. Remember the line from Eliot, if all time is eternally, if all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. If there's nothing, if we're caught in time, 
and there's nothing in time to redeem us that's of time, then all time is unredeemable. It's only because something comes in from outside of time that we can be redeemed. Both Benji and Quentin are trapped in time, and time is cyclical. Now remember, another way of looking at this, I've been talking about north and south and the decline of the, of the south. How does the, how does the, the, the uh, constant story start? With Damity's death. She dies, right? That's the marker, that's the first major episode. How does it end? With Quentin going off promiscuously. The old dam, the lady of the family, the grandmother, dies. That marks the end of a generation away. And what we see from that point on is the decline taking place. So that what we're left with here is um, an idiot, adultery, alcohol, an illegitimate child, um, um, a boy who was castrated, and a girl whose name will never be mentioned again. And this is how it ends. So we can mark the decline symbolically um, from the grandmother's death to what happens with it. This is the old world. This is the new world that we're a part of. I'll understand if nobody wants to come back to class again. <laughs> how is that for dark? Dark enough? God. Does anybody be here again uh, next week? It's no darker than, you know, like every day. Every day, in yeah. The world, right? like the Don't say that. Day. You sound like <laughs> one of the Quentin parents, or I mean, one of the Compson. Um, and then I was in time hearing the watch. It was grandfather's, and when father gave it to me, he said, I give you the mausoleum of all hope and desire. There is nothing worth living for for that father. All life is a mausoleum. It's rather excruciatingly apt that you, and listen, you can hear him pronouncing it with that fastidious sense of somebody who's well-educated to, to give an emphasis to the word. Um, excruciatingly apt. That you will use it to gain the reductio ad absurdum of all human experience which can fit your individual needs no better than it fitted his or his father's. I give it to you, not that you remember time, but that you might forget it now and then for a moment and not spend your breath trying to conquer it because no battle is ever won. What's the... Is there any reason for having courage? Why fight? Even, I mean, there's been a belief in our country that... Well, maybe recently, but... Um, that it was still worth fighting for even if you lost because what you fought for indicated what you lived for. Yeah. It's better to go into a battle and die than not fight because everything's meaningless. So his father's given him very little to live for as a father. Um, um, going over to 92, 93. I'm going to try to go through this really quickly. Um, this is where he sets off. He's going to meet the boys in the swim hole shortly. Um, 93 in the middle. 
hearty celluloid like a drummer, face full of teeth, white but not smiling. I think this is a depiction of Herbert. I've heard of him up there, all teeth but not smiling. You going to drive? Get in, Quentin. You going to drive? It's her car. Aren't you proud of your little um, sister-owned first auto in town? Herbert, his present? You can hear the mutter, mother. God, it's just embarrassing. Um, what? Bragging be because Caddy now is going to marry this guy who's got all this wealth so she can identify herself with the first car in town. Because you know how important the, the status is for the mom. It's everything to her. Um, go on over at the bottom of 94. Um, there was no nigger in this car and the hats unbleached as yet flowing past under the window. Going to Harvard, we have sold Benji's. This is an instance of where we're in Quentin's present, but the past keeps intruding. And I hope by, by now you know that because there's no punctuation, it's because in our thoughts, there is no punctuation. Thoughts come in and out. I mean, they break up our thought. We can be in the middle of something and suddenly be distracted. A thought enters us that Faulkner's rendering reality just as it is. Going to Harvard, we sold Benji's. He lay on the ground under the window bellowing. We have sold Benji's pasture so that Quentin may go to Harvard. A brother to you, your little brother. And those are echoes of the mom, I think. You should have a car. It's done you no good. Of, or, um, no end of good. Don't you think so, Quentin? I call him Quentin at once. Um, you see, I've heard so much about him from Candace. Why shouldn't you? I want my boys to be more than friends. Yes, Candace and Quentin, more than friends. Father, I have committed. We will learn that he goes to him and says he committed incest. What a pity you had no brother or sister. No sister, no sister, had no sister. Don't ask Quentin. He and Mr. Thompson both feel a little insulted when I'm strong enough to come down to the table. I'm going on nerve now. I'll pay for it after it's all over. And you've taken my little daughter away from me. My little sister had no... You, I mean, we're getting different people running together. If I could say, mother, mother, unless I do what I'm tempted to and take you instead. He's flirting with the mom. I'll take you instead of Candace. I hope everybody got that. Um, Herbert is saying, unless I, unless I do what I'm tempted to do and take you instead, I don't think Mr. Thompson could overtake the car. That is, that he could outrace him. He's trying to be flattering. He's flirting, but how pro and the mother's response, ah, Herbert, Candace, do you hear that? She wouldn't look at me, soft, stubborn. This is Candace not looking at, at Quentin. You needn't be jealous, though. It's just an old woman. He's flattering a grown married daughter. I can't believe it. Candace is disgusted. Nonsense, you look like a girl. You're, you are lots younger than Candace colored. I mean, so we get this sense of um, what kind of man he is. Um, over on page um, 108, he, um, Herbert and Quinton engage um, Herbert is making a comment that he's too busy to follow Harvard sports um, and and there's something about the way he's setting it up that leads Quentin to think that he's trying to gain favor with him and in the middle of 108 I'm not going to tell father and mother if that's what you're getting at not going to tell not going oh that's what you're talking about is it um, 
he says he doesn't give a damn, and yet over and over he makes clear afterwards that he does. Um, at the top of 109, I promised your mother to do something for Jason, but I would like to give you a hand too. Jason would be just as well off here, but there's no future in a hole like this for a young fellow like you. Thank you, you'd better stick to Jason. He offers him money in a minute. Um, page 1010 in the middle of the page. Um, Quentin's response is, I want to tell you about a little, little widow over in town. He offers him money and he's going to set him up with sex. I know where there's this widow in Harvard. Is everybody following? Here's this banker who's used to getting what he wants with money. It couldn't be farther away from this agrarian world that Quentin comes from. I want to tell you about a little widow over in town. I've heard that too. Keep your damn money. Call it a loan then. Just shut your eyes a minute. He keeps saying, you're going to get out on your own. You're going to find out that's the way the world is. And all this does is make it harder for Quentin because that is not who Quentin is. Quint or Caddy comes on in this conversation in 111. You're meddling my business again. Didn't I tell you enough um, of that last summer? Caddy, you've got fever. You're sick. How are you? You're sick. How are you sick? I'm just sick. I can't ask. Um, he keeps saying you can't marry him at the top of 113. She's getting angry and angry. She says, I've got to marry somebody. Then they told me the bone would have to be broken again. Um, she has to marry him. The bottom of 115, I've got to marry someone. Um, I want to skip to... Um, there are all those passages dealing with his image of the two of them going to hell and being enclosed in this pure <coughs> flame. Um, on 149, 148, I, I want to spend a minute with this because it seems to me this is one of the most important episodes in the whole of the book. Um, you know that he was picked up, he went to the police um, department, he was cleared, they're in Mrs. Bland's car leaving, he's listening to Gerard talk about women the way he he, um, he does. Mrs. Um, Bland goes on talking about wine in the hamper because they're going to have a picnic and she thinks it's really important for people to have wine to drink. Um, and then this happens. They're in the car on the bottom of 147. If that hamper's in his way, Miss McKenzie, move it over to your side. We keep getting her conversation, or she's not talking to anybody, she's talking at them, she's just explaining what it is to be a gentleman, what aristocratic people do. And Quentin is taken back to these experiences with Caddy on 149, towards the top. But he always said that a hamper, what book did you read that in the one where Gerald's, Gerald's rowing suit of wine was a necessary part of any, any gentleman's pis, picnic basket? Her conversation will go on. We'll pick it up at intervals, but then we keep getting these memories in Quentin. Did you love them, Caddy? Did you love them? When they touched me, I died. Mrs. Bland goes on. The minute she was standing there next, he was yelling. Um, we get um, this conversation going on, and then we're taken to this scene with um, Candy and Quentin at the branch in water. And he, on 150, he keeps asking her, do you love him? Um, did he make you do it then? Um, at the top of 151, I nobody need ever know. We can take my school money. We, we can cancel my matriculation. Caddy, you hate him, don't you, don't you? Caddy, you hate him, don't you? She moved my hand up against her throat. 
Her heart was hammering there. Poor Quentin. She looks at her brother and feels sorry for him because he's so distraught knowing what she's about to do. Um, top of 152, I held the point of the knife at her throat. It won't take but a second, just a second, then I can do mine. I can do mine then. All right. Can you do yours by yourself? Yes, the blade's long enough. Benji's in bed by now. Yes, it goes on. Um, um, Caddy keeps saying to him, don't cry. I'm not crying, Caddy. Push it. Are you going to? Do you want me to? Yes, push it. Touch your hand. It's, I, 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 I don't know how you guys are reading this. It's partly like an over-dramatized thing because emotionally they're so wrought up. It's hard to believe that he would go through it. But it's like he has to make that gesture to show how deep his convictions are. I'm not convinced that he could do it. But I don't think he knows that. It's just he has to be emotional so that there's no doubt about just how he feels about her. Um, she stands up. He drops the knife. They search for it. He searches for it. Um, um, he tells her to go home. Um, over on 157, she starts to go. Um, he starts to um, walk off. Bottom of 157, do you love him now? Not breathing except slow, like faraway breathing. Caddy, do you love him now? I don't know. Outside the gray water, the shadows of things like dead things and stagnant water. I wish, I wish you were dead. Go on over. There was a passage earlier, I wish we had time, there was a passage earlier where the mother is talking about wanting to run away with Jason. Remember she says to her husband, Jason, um, let me take Jason and go off because Jason's the only one like me. And you, and you know that we're going to find out in the Jason episode that he's the worst of the children. What the mother doesn't see and how much she's helped bring that. Um, but the reason I want to just mention it is because she said, I deserve this punishment. I'm being punished. There is running through this entire section, what I'm going to call this dark Calvinistic sense. And she says, the bloodline, we are cursed. It's the family bloodline. You won't get any good out of this. The, the people start with this dark sense of some, the, the, the Negroes have it as well. But there's this curse on the family. So it immediately, I can't say this strongly, immediately get this sense that there is this dark sense of religion and no sense of mercy anywhere. When Caddy has that illegitimate child, I mean, the real, remember the, for Dante, the real problem is bringing justice and mercy together. There is no mercy in this family at all. At all. There's no sense of a forgiving God or a loving God. It is a dark, dark sense of punishment and forbidding and sin and um, curses. At the top of 158, you go on into the house, go on now. I am, don't cry. I'm bad anyway. You can't help it. There's a curse on us. It's not our fault, is it? Our fault. Um, now, from this point on, I, I, I'm going to just tell this quickly. You know what happens now. We go from that scene with Caddy in the Branch to the, his scene of meeting Dalton Ames on the bridge. He meets Dalton coming out of the barbershop. They agree to meet. On page 160, 161, he tells Dalton to get out of town. And Dalton says, oh, or else what? Um, Quentin threatens him. Dalton picks Quentin up with both hands, picks him up, and then holds him with one hand while he reaches in and gets a gun. 
he takes a piece of bark, drops it in the river, and he says, is it far enough away now? And um, Kuhn says, yes, it's got to be at some impossible distance. He, without even aiming, he shoots it and splits it. He says, that's so you know what you're up against. He puts three bullets back in the gun and gives it to Clinton. Um, um, he, he tries to hit him, and on page 161, after he hands him the gun, we get this sense that Quentin fainted. Um, at the bottom of one, he holding me at my feet. Did you hit me? I couldn't hear. What? Yes, how do you feel? All right, let go. He let me go. I leaned against the rail. Do you feel all right? The wonderful thing about Dalton Ames for the next few minutes, he is absolutely solicitous of, of Quentin. He asks if he's okay. When Quentin came up, he said, is she okay? Is everything all right with her? Over and over and over again, he shows a concern for Caddy. What's going on? Can you make it home all right? Go on, let me alone. You better not try to walk. Take my horse. So in, in a strange way, even if he seems boorish, Dalton Ames seems to be almost the epitome of the ideal that Quentin is, wanted to live up and couldn't. Um, he had sex with his sister, but he's not just a brutal... Uh, Herbert was mean. Um, Dalton Ames is not. Um, Caddy comes up running um, when um, Dalton Ames goes off. 163, do you love him, Caddy? Do I what? She looked at me then, everything emptied out of her eyes, and they looked like the eyes in statues, blank and unseen and serene. Put your hand against my throat. She took my hand and held it flat against her throat. Now say his name, Dalton Ames. I felt the first surge of blood there. It surged in strong, accelerating beats. Say it again. Same thing. The mere mention of the name sends her heart pounding. Um, okay, one question here before, or actually two questions to see. How do we look at Quentin? I'm asking that really seriously. How do you know that what's going to happen here? He's going to get. Um, he's going to wake up and find that he was knocked unconscious. And then he's going to go back to his room. He's going to clean up his suit, brush his teeth. He's going to be meticulous. Um, he's going to start to leave the, the room. He turns back and sees his hat and goes to get his hat. He's absolutely scrupulous about details. He wants to look um, proper for his death. So um, two questions. Um, one, that, that one, what do we think of, of Quentin? How, what, do we, what do we make of him as a character? Number one. But I want to go back to another question before because that to me is a big one. Why is this whole scene involving Caddy and Quentin at the river, at the branch, and, and Quentin and Dalton in these short phrases? Because if you look at the pages, you know that even when he's in his head, the lines go across the page fully. But in this section, everything's itemized, right? We get phrases and words following. So we don't get sentences, we don't get thoughts even running together. We get these images, words by themselves. Remember, it's with, the, and it's interesting, that's, this is the longest episode of all of them in the, in the Quentin episode, right? The one with Caddy at the, at the, at the, at the branch, and the one with the alt names. That, that is the long, and it takes place in the car. Why does Fogner change the form at this point? 
he doesn't do things lightly. When he doesn't use a period, it's not because <laughs> he's being ungrammatical. Why does he do that? What's going on here? It's highly conversational here. It isn't always. There's a lot of you know thought. Yeah. What's is everybody clear? What's Quentin's state at this time? He's knocked out. Oh. <laughs> he said to Gerard, if you had a sister, I mean, Gerard's talking about, I think, women being bitches. And, and, he, and he's asked it of Herbert. I mean, he asks that of the men, do you have sisters? And, and something happens. We don't know what happened, but we know that Quentin wakes up. I think Dalton actually hit him. Yeah, As knocked him out. Just passing out. Yeah. Wait, Dalton didn't, I don't think Dalton hit him, but Gerard did. Oh, oh sorry, sorry. Yeah. Why is the, why the change in format? You all notice that, right? Yeah. It's more linear, or it's more itemized, not linear. Why would he do that? Except you know he's out right now. Sorry? This is the one section that actually does make sense when you read it. Mm -hmm. So why did he, I mean, why would he do it here? What's going on? Why? It's almost like you're reading clarity. You're reading with clarity something that is not clear in the story. I, I, don't, I don't know how else to put that. Now why would he do it? Yeah, I think it's a good description of what's going on. Why? Mm -hmm. Joan, what do you make of this? <laughs> Never been in this time. Candy. Candy, anybody? Candy, you do anything? Um, it's just for all, um, fast paced, um, emotional. seems to be one of the things that we can say about this, he's unconscious. And it seems to me, my own sense, I, I mean, this is my best guess on this is, um, that it seems to me we are at the depths of his unconscious at this moment. He muses, he speculates, thoughts coming out from his dad. We're taken to the center of the things that mean most to Quentin. His relationship with Caddy, what I, what I don't know what to call it, love of death is maybe too strong, but, um, but wanting to answer this dishonor by doing away with their lives. And um, the failure of the honor code in what happens with Dalton. So it seems to me that we are at the depths of his unconscious and there's a clarity and a focus at that depth and that's Faulkner's way of letting us know that's where we are. So we're not in the consciousness where things are getting, you know, softened through the thing. We're in the subconscious. We're, yeah, yeah, and, and we're taken, I think, to the most defining things in his life. Mm -hmm. This is the most elaborate, it's the most developed, and it goes to the heart of those two things. His relationship with his sister, and his struggles with his own sense of honor, and, 
and, and, and it's humiliation of what happens with Dalton. And the irony, because in some ways Dalton Ames, however boorish he is, he does what Quentin can't, so... Not fogged by rationalization. Huh? Not fogged by rationalization. Yeah, truly, truly. Could you clarify what, what portion you're talking about when you think he's if you if you go it by pages. yeah it's it starts it starts at um, 152 is where it becomes most visible it's but I, I think it starts um, it starts on 148 149 um, when he's in the car we don't get the by the way we don't get this is really we don't get the beginning of the fight. We don't learn what happened until Shreve tells him on page 160. So 148 to 164. He wakes up and look what he says. Has it stopped, Shreve? said, give me the rag. Look out, I said. I can do it. Yes, it's about stopped. <coughs> he said, you need a piece of beefsteak for that eye. Son of a bitch, he said. <coughs> Did I hurt him any? I wrung out the handkerchief and tried to clean. <coughs> you can't get that off. Um, go down. Look out, I said, I can do it. He's getting irritated. He wants to do it. Did I hurt him any? And um, Shreve makes it clear that everything was all right until he jumped at him about, um, he says over in 166, the first I knew was when you jumped up all of a sudden and said, did you ever have a sister? Did you? And that's when he went nuts and Gerard hits him. So from 148 to 166, this is, ex he, he got this from Joyce. We are with, we are, well, we're literally with Quentin in the car going with Gerard talking in his, you know, boisterous way. And then we learn here later that he got up and jumped all over him because he was so outraged at what he was saying about women and he knocked him out. And what we learn is that all that took place in that period that has that different form took place while he was out. So my, I, my question is, does he, I think he's doing that as a way of showing he's out, this is his subconscious, deeper than what we get in, in all these conscious musings through the... and that they're defining that these are the two... these are the, the, the two things that, that have the greatest hold on him. Um, the other question, I think I'm going to wait, but let me, I, I think what I'd like to do is begin next time, take a few minutes with Quentin. The question that I'd like to ask is, what do you, what do you make of Quentin? What do you think of him? Um, what do we make of this? We'll start, there isn't as much to do with the Jason section. He's just mean. Um, but Benji and Quentin, um, there's a lot going on in the souls of those two men, so... Are you going to talk at all about why uh, Faulkner started with the Benji story? I saw a lot of discussion, and I think he actually expressed an opinion on, on it, and I'm just kind of curious to get your take on that. Let's uh, wait. Um, I not wanted, now, but, you know. Yeah, I wanted to wait, but I, I'm not sure, because I'd be glad to hear what you <coughs> um, But, yeah, I, I, this whole thing about why he places on Easter weekend and why the inversion for me is crucial, but I want to wait until we're... Yeah, close to the end. I, I think he, he was asked that question and, and, and he 
gave a response, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. I just wanted to see what you Hold on, would you, until we end. Okay. Can, can everybody just take a minute and, and take the chairs out and push these tables? Put the chairs up? No, just put them around the... Oh, okay. 